Good morning. I am your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the February 3rd, 2015 edition of Ask a Leader. Today we'll devote the whole hour to the work of Dr. Virginia Camonis, UCI professor with the Department of Pediatrics, University of California Irvine Division of Genetics and Metabolism. She'll be joined today by two patients who will talk about being at the receiving end of her breakthrough diagnostic tools and treatments, education and support dealing with rare genetic neuromuscular diseases. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a station break. My guests for the whole hour on the show are UCI professor Dr. Virginia Camonis and two patients of hers, Zach Damone with his father, Don, and David Sweetman with his wife, Donna. If you are up to date on President Obama's initiative to increase National Institutes of Health funding of genetic research for precision, personalized, or individualized medicine, you would say that Dr. Camonis setting up his Center for Excellence is in a public policy sweet spot as she investigates specific genetic mutations that result in rare diseases. Today, we're going to put both the microscope and the telescope on rare diseases, the challenges along with the opportunities, and the potential for collaboration with researchers and clinicians at UC Irvine focused on rare diseases. They are studying novel treatments for genetic causes of muscle and bone disease, Prader-Willi and Angelman syndromes, lysosomal storage diseases, mitochondrial diseases, and other rare diseases. Dr. Kimonis is particularly interested in inherited muscle disorders that occur in combination with diseases of bone and or frontal temporal dementia. She completed her medical degree at Southampton Medical School. After serving a host of appointments at medical facilities around the United Kingdom, the United Arab Emirates, Southern Illinois University, and Harvard University, Dr. Kimonis joined UCI in 2006. And thank goodness. Joining us in today's program are two of her patients with two different diseases, but with some similar features, which she'll explain. Originally a pediatric patient, Zach Dumond is now 21. He was diagnosed with Pompa at the age of nine. Zach is now a second-year student at Cal State University, Fullerton. David Sweetman, whom we're trying to queue up at this point, way out there in the um, Ray out in Fish Lake Valley, Nevada. We hope we can cue him up shortly. We'll have to take a short break to get him. Uh, he was diagnosed with Paget's disease in his early 30s. David Sweetman keeps an encyclopedic record on himself, which can be seen on his website. We'll give that again later. Triple W quad, that's Q-U-A-D-D dot info. David completed electrical engineering training in the Navy. And on the civilian side, he completed his Bachelor's of Science in Physics at Cal State San Diego and an MBA at Santa Clara University. After an illustrious engineering career at power plants in around San Silicon Valley, he retired in 1999. Shortly, David and his wife Donna will come to us from Fish Lake Valley, Nevada. 
Dr. Kimonis, Zach, and John Damone join me in Studio A. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Kimonis, Zach, and Don. And Dave and Donna, I'm just going to take one brief moment, and we're going to cue him right in. So welcome, everyone, to the show. Thank you. you. Well, let's begin. We're going to start with the really general, as usual. Tell us, Dr. Kimonis, about what you had to tackle with in earlier years of your research you started when genetic sequencing was new and how the speed of getting your results has increased exponentially. And folks, as we considered that the human genome is made up of over 3 billion of these genetic letters, it gives us a sense of the level of complexity involved here. So Dr. Kimonis, tell us about the start. Thank you, Claudia, for inviting me to this uh, radio show. It's a huge opportunity for me to make aware of my interest in developing UC Irvine as a rare disease research uh, center. So you're right about uh, the difficulties that that, uh, researchers had to face in the good old days where we did not have the tools that we do now to try and find genes, try and even find the location of the genes. So when I started in genetics, which was in 1992 as a fellow at the National Institute of Health, I was researching skin diseases and we used um, very antiquated tools to do what's called linkage. And linkage is a way to look at random markers in the genome to try and hone in where the gene is. And it was very tedious. It took me one year to map the gene um, in a family with palmer plantar keratoderma. So um, very different from what I'm doing right now. Um, But at the NIH, I learned the tools and how to link genes, find the critical region of the genes, do sequencing of genes in a very um, rudimentary, uh, uh, laborious, tedious way. Um, And then when I went to Springfield, Illinois as an assistant professor, I had the luxury of um, being the sole geneticist for a wide area. And um, I was referred a family with uh, what was uh, then thought to be limb girdle muscular dystrophy and Paget disease of bone. Uh, And some people also had dementia. And uh, with my tools that I had learned at the NIH and the help of some students and uh, a very supportive chief who then um, uh, paid for a a researcher uh, to help me uh, in the lab, uh, we, with the old-fashioned way, mapped the gene, um, or rather we excluded um, genes that were associated with limb girdle muscular dystrophy. And finding the gene was a challenge, so you had to do what was a a genome search for the gene. Um, And we finally mapped it to chromosome 9, and I had to then find other families to try and get get to the critical region because uh, there would have been way too many genes in the old-fashioned way to sequence. And so I traveled all over the United States um, meeting families with this rare combination of muscle, bone, and dementia. And I finally uh, uh, narrowed the region to... um, a manageable 82 genes, and even that was too big for my lab. So we uh, shared the load with other researchers, collaborators, and uh, two or three years later, uh, so that was in uh, 2003, we found the gene to be VCP. Uh, So uh, until you find the gene, it's very hard to make inroads into um, 
research and uh, novel treatments for rare genetic disorders. That has to be the first step. Uh, and so I'm very delighted that the National Institute of Health is devoting a large amount of its, um, well, I wish it was larger than it was. It's never enough. Uh, uh, to um, rare diseases. And um, the NIH has developed centers of excellence uh, all over the country now uh, f to diagnose the undiagnosed as well as to, um, to work on many rare genetic disorders. D Dr. Kamos, I just want to find out with the, that earlier effort, that, were those all adult patients at that point? <laughs> that you were working with, with that chromosome 9, or was it there were all ages? They were all ages. So okay. uh, genetics um, really has no boundaries in terms of age. So we know when uh, a fetus is affected with a disorder, but of course uh, there are ethical considerations um, that prevent us uh, from diagnosing adult onset disorders uh, in um uh, in childhood anyway, so typically individuals are uh, able to consent to get their own testing done. So typically adult onset disorders are tested uh, over the age of 18 when individuals can give their own permission. And I know that we could do a whole show on families testing and uh, siblings, and, and that's a whole part of what's going on, but um, we're going to try to work on uh, what the path here, a specific path, but that, and that will, we can save for uh, another moment, because I'm, I'm not sure we're going to have time to talk about how fraught that is with all of the, uh, I mean, it, there's d desirable data in, in testing all family members, but there are, um, there's, there's a lot of hitches to that for um, for their own protection, but so that, that's the sort of double-edged sword here. So, oh, so could you briefly, Dr. Kimonis, put in perspective when we talk about rare diseases, how rare are they? So there are more than seven thousand rare uh, genetic disorders, probably way more than that, and of course, no center can study all of them. Um, if you put all of the rare disorders together, however, they become a fairly common disorder, uh, occurring perhaps one in 200 individuals or even more than that. Um, but it's really important to study rare disorders because they not only, so there is a huge burden of individuals across the country with rare disorders that are currently, currently their needs are unmet, that the other advantage is that common disorders are made up of mutations in Red, in genes that cause rare disorders. So it has huge implications, and it's actually a very cost-effective way uh, to do research to study rare disorders because it really get, gives you a handle on the more common disorders, and many breakthroughs have occurred as a result of focusing on rare diseases. Okay. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and all over on the web and uh, at, at labs um, on K at KUCI.org. My guests are Dr. Virginia Kimonis, David Sweetman and his wife Donna, Zach and his father Don Demond. And we're talking about uh, rare genetic diseases where the, the, the actual number of uh, Patients with these diseases, in, in particular specific disorders, may be small, but we're turning that microscopic view to the telescopic. There are much, much broader applications where this research is benefiting. Well, if not often, if not always, the patients enrolled in your research, Dr. Kimonis, 
who've cast about the medical profession trying to get clarity on what it is the real explanation for the conditions that their child, their spouse, or someone presents, somehow they find you. Um, but let's face it, that's not a very efficient means for getting patient and clinician together. How are you and your colleagues establishing this center of excellence? How are you sorting that out? So this is not new. So throughout my career, I have uh, worked with rare and undiagnosed disorders and uh, my training in uh, genetics, so I'm trained in clinical as well as metabolic genetics, has given me the tools to tease out the various symptoms and features of, of genetic disorders. So uh, a clinical geneticist is in the best position to diagnose undiagnosed disorders because they have the full range of both uh, molecular, metabolic, uh, and research tools. And now we have a wonderful tool called an exome sequence. So an exome uh, is the, the coding region of a gene. We have 30,000 pairs of genes, but you can sequence the entire um, uh, exome uh, sequence of all the genes um, very quickly uh, in, in a matter of a few days um, at most a few weeks. Of course, the interpretation uh, of the data does take a, a lot longer, and labs are uh, typically uh, commercial labs are taking between six to eight weeks or, or more to provide the results uh, of the um, uh, exome sequencing. So that has been a wonderful tool to diagnose the undiagnosed. But of course, uh, it comes at a price, and so uh, it is always a good idea to have a basic genetic evaluation because. Uh, um, a clinician will be able to instantly diagnose a, a person by looking at the features, doing a few simple tests. Not all patients need an exome sequencing. It is only for those uh, that cannot be diagnosed by the routine means. <clears throat> but by then doing exome sequencing, you find the gene. You can then, of course, there are, for some disorders, there are specific treatments that are already available. But this then gives us a way to do research, to make mouse models, to do um, uh, cell work to make stem cells uh, and look for innovative treatments. And that is what I have done um, with uh, the, the rare disease that you mentioned associated with Paget bone disease. So as a result of our initial tools, we found that VCP was the gene. And now um, I uh, follow about 60 patients with VCP mutations. Um, I don't have a treatment right now, but um, uh, we made a mouse model. Uh, it's a replica of the human. It has many of the features of the human. And uh, it, just in the last couple of weeks, we have had a couple of papers accepted um, uh, with uh, um, uh, outlining the, the treatment with uh, autophagy modifier um, rapamycin and also a way of uh, removing the um, gene uh, uh, sorry, the mutation in uh, exon 5 uh, in the VCP gene um, with a technology known as uh, Cree technology in the mouse. And we're going to be applying that to patients uh, using oligonucleotides to actually um, remove the mutation. Uh, so good things are coming along, uh, but uh, the first first hurdle has to be um, identifying the gene and then working with a researcher uh, if there are no uh, treatments available to try and get an understanding of uh, what that mutation does and how to modify it. So before we get to our specific uh, patient sorts of case studies, the genetic workup, has that been done at the household level and they bring you that data or is that a part of your 
center of excellence. Who's who's footing that bill? Who's getting that started? Well, so finding the gene is uh, generally, you know, within the domain of the clinic. But when a gene is found, a mutation is found, if there are no researchers working on the particular disorder, as I mentioned, there are more than 7,000 disorders. So there are many underserved rare disorders. Then a researcher has to Uh, have the funds to be able to continue. So I have been very fortunate. I have been funded for many years now uh, from the NIH and Muscular Dystrophy Association, the Paget Foundation, uh, and several other smaller foundations. And that has enabled me to make a mouse model to study it for many, many years, uh, to, to modify the phenotype that, that we see in the, uh, the mice as well as the patients, and also uh, the cell work. So we're very fortunate that I work across from the stem cell building, and, right. um, and I am funded by CIRM. They uh, support the salary of a full-time postdoctoral trainee, and we are able to use the stem cells to make muscle cells, to make motor neuron cells, because it's very hard to get these um, uh, tissue from patients, as you, as you can imagine, but this gives us an endless supply of cells that we can work with. And just by uh, definition, CIRM is the Center for the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine, just so people have that. We've talked with a few stem cell guests in the past, so um, some may or may not have heard about that before. Well, let's then talk specifically to this. We have, um, first, we have Zach Dumont, and he's in studio with me uh, to talk about the... uh, his sort of his pediatric uh, profile here. So, Zach, the onset of your Pampa disease, you could tell us your story um, as a boy about your developmental milestones, the the pace and the variation from you notice from typical children moving from the uncertainty to getting clarity when you m- met and found out about Dr. Kimonis's work. All right. Uh, the first, I started showing signs. I would guess around when I was in Little League, when I was around uh, the age of seven. That's when I first noticed that I wasn't as uh, fast as the other kids, physically, not mentally, and I couldn't keep up with just uh, common mundane activities. And a few of the milestones, I guess, is something that I don't think people understand is that very simple tasks for uh, some are very hard for others. So, uh, one of the uh, simple tasks that I couldn't do when I was younger would just be climbing a flight of stairs. But even now, I have at my school, I have a class on the fifth floor, and I can just easily get up there without thinking much of it. Of course, I'm a little fatigued and out of breath when I get to the top, but it's still a major improvement to what I used to be able to do. And another, uh, going off of that, another milestone would be I used to have trouble getting into the car, but Now, I commute daily uh, to my school, which is a 30-minute drive, which is something that I'm very proud of and something that I can do independently. And and what do you attribute the progress you made? To what do you attribute that to? What's your regimen? It's a combination of a bunch of different things. I think getting professional advice from all of my doctors is a major part of it and following it closely. Another one would be my diet and my uh, exercise regimen, which is currently um, 30 minutes of daily um, cardio exercise, um, a high protein 
low carb diet is another part of uh keeping me healthy and um i think just uh another integral part of my um routine would be have to would be getting a uh, infusion treatments every two weeks and can you can you describe a little bit or and maybe dr Kimonis can also um explain along with you what the infusion is all about basically it's so uh, let me help you. So um, <clears throat> I just want to clarify the, the disorder that uh, Zach has. So Zach has Pompe disease or Pompa disease, Pump. uh, uh, and it's a glycogen storage disease. Um, and the deficiency of the enzyme is uh, alpha-glucosidase, and that is the enzyme that Zach gets replaced. Uh, uh, it, it's, uh, it's made synthetically, um, and it's a very big dose that Zach has, so 20 milligrams per kilo. It takes hours to mix, and it takes hours to infuse. And we're very fortunate that uh, his insurance permits uh, him to receive enzyme at home, and so Zach can carry on his normal routine life um, and has actually seen benefits as a result of this enzyme treatment. And how frequently is this infusion necessary? Is this like a weekly, daily? It's uh, once every two weeks. Once every two weeks. Yes. So you've got to square that with your schedule at school. Yeah, it's a big part of my day. It takes about four to five hours for one uh, infusion. Okay. So this is shoring him up right now. This the infusion. Right. So without the infusion, um, his muscle would continue to accumulate the glycogen and would continue to deteriorate. And um, so um, uh, Pompe disease uh, is a spectrum. So the classic type that people um, learned in medical school um, is the infantile type where individuals um, were born very floppy and um, had a very had very big hearts, and even those babies now are improving with the enzyme. And then um, six times as common um, is the adult type, and um, the uh, phenotype is that of a limb girdle muscular dystrophy, and, and that was the natural progression for me. Um, uh, VCP disease is quite rare. Pompeii is rare, but not as rare. Uh, and I see a lot of similarities, not only in the features. So the muscle uh, disease is very similar <clears throat> with the limb girdle. So the upper part of the um, legs and arms are affected, the trunk um, and um, uh, the diaphragm muscle also is affected and in Pompe disease because of the glycogen storage material and in VCP disease because of the inclusion body. So we see by studying the mechanism of the damage, we see some other similarities such as autophagy is a, um, a mechanism um, uh, in, in which uh, the body um, um, uh, basically engulfs material to uh, to keep the uh, the organism uh, going and we see that there are common mechanisms in these two disorders in which autophagy is uh, is affected um, so um, without the enzyme uh, Zach would have continued to decline in terms of his muscle strength it would have affected his heart and diaphragm but he is actually doing very well in, in all of those um, areas of his um, muscle involvement well let, I want to walk back and we can include Don Damon Zach's father too in this that um, I don't know when if Zach was uh, showing those signs around age seven or uh, when you began to w uh, consult with a neurologist, but the neurologist was not uh, was not schooled in what 
that what sort of genetic profile here that Zach was presenting. So originally, do I understand correctly, he had been diagnosed with maybe muscular sclerosis, MS, was it first? It's true, yes. Okay. We, we had, um, it was actually the, um, the third doctor who finally diagnosed it correctly. So, th- so that's we'd... the key. That's one of the takeaways is that the, what families struggle with, they're trying to find the clinician who can explain what's going on. And that that's the clarity that's the uh, holy grail at, when you get to these centers of excellence to to get first the label, the diagnosis, and then to work from there. But So you experienced that. Uh, very much so. So uh, originally we actually didn't realize um, – why Zach was slower than some of the other kids in playing baseball and stuff like that. And what? How what was, could you know? Uh, what was the, what was odd was the triggering event was actually uh, he got an illness uh, in the fall uh, and he ended up with pneumonia and in the hospital. And even in the hospital, we came out of the hospital without him being fully diagnosed. And it, it was a few months later at UCI, in fact, that we finally had proper diagnosis for for Zach. And how did you get together? How did you meet up with Dr. Kimonis? It was her colleague that you met who made right. this diagnosis. Right. It was Dr. Mozafar uh, originally who properly diagnosed Who's that. Who's part of the team? He is, yeah. So he's a, a fine neuromuscular a neurologist over here. And Dr. Mozaf and I work very closely with many of rare neuromuscular disorders. And um, being a metabolic geneticist, uh, I typically treat metabolic disorders. And Pompe disease would be considered both neuromuscular as well as metabolic. And actually, Zach happens to be my very first patient that I administered uh, enzyme. Uh, it had just only become available and so Zach has really been um, right there from the beginning, uh, so receiving enzymes since 2007. Okay, <laughs> since, oh, well, okay. So I don't know how, if there's a takeaway, Don, you can offer, and with Dr. Kimonis, is about how you knew, how you got from where you were to getting this diagnosis. That this, was it, it wasn't random, that somehow you were getting closer and closer to, to ma- the matching up with the clinician who could breakthrough for you. Right. I, I think it ties back to um, the, the the uniqueness of the disease or the rareness of the disease. And, and in fact, it was, you know, my wife, Sabrina, who was the most persistent person in the world. and A stellar, uh, several, stellar team member. Yeah, several, uh, several uh, months and months and months of testing. Uh, but sadly, what we found out is that if you're not doing the right tests, you're not going to find the right answer to the test. So when we when we did finally get to UCI and Dr. Mozafar, he uh, he had Zach do a few uh, motor skills things, and he had narrowed it down in his own mind. I mean, just because of his knowledge of the disease, I think. Uh, so I, I think the key learning for us is just persistence, right? If you um, if you feel like you're um, not getting um, a, a breakthrough to where you actually have an answer, I mean, I think you mentioned it earlier, going from uncertainty to clarity, uh, certainly. Uh, there's a point where you you just want to expand the horizon and look to another medical professional just to make sure that you know you're getting the thorough testing and finding the right answers. And I know from talking with some of other Dr. Kimonis patients who unfortunately were not available to be part of this interview is there there's a kind of um, a point where they want to accept the the this a non-typical child is this is what it is but you think no there's another there's more rocks to pick up and look underneath so it's a kind of a it's sort of a, a spiritual a scientific kind of 
reconciling along the way to actually finding out. And I, and the point of this whole interview today in this program is to give people some tools to persist in this so that there is a very specific approach, whether there's not a cure at this point, but there are treatments, there's ways to stabilize, there's ways to strengthen what is there to work with, whether it's a, a pediatric onset or a later in adulthood. So I think we need, David, are you still there? Oh, yes. Okay, we, I bet you were wondering if we'd bring you back up here. When, <laughs> there, hello, Don. Thank you for being on the show and, and so patiently waiting your turn. Well, I'd like for you to tell us uh, how it went along your path of finding clarity with your diagnosis with Paget's disease, the longer expression being inclusion body myopathy associated with Paget's disease of bone and frontal temporal dementia. So where did you first start noticing some things were different? Okay. Uh, First, I I do not, as far as we know yet, I do not have the Paget's. I've only got the muscle atrophy. Okay. Uh, and and apparently you. I'm not supposed to have the dementia either. Okay. Uh, my journey <laughs> has taken many decades uh, to identify. Uh, I was a, a small child, and then when I, when I finally grew uh, quite a bit, then I said, oh, uh, the challenge is to play sports. Uh, much Athletics were much more challenging than any uh, mental activities. So when I started playing sports, it was okay, other than being a, you know, I was just a small person. Uh, but then uh, as I got into my 20s, I still played a lot of sports, primarily basketball, and my skill was degenerating much faster than that of my peers. So I started going to my regular doctor and saying, hey, something's wrong. And he went, it's all in your head. Uh, And I went, no, something's wrong. So after about a decade of that, he said, here, I'm going to send you to a neurologist. So I went to a neurologist who started doing various testing and said, you know, I was an adult child of an alcoholic. I was, uh, uh, I traveled too much, Uh, you know, various things like that. That went on for about 10 years. And finally, after about 10 years, after some uh, testing, of uh, a blood test, a CPK test, the neurologist said, okay, I agree that there's something wrong. I don't know what it is, but there is something wrong. Uh, then about uh, a, a few years before that, uh, my aunt, uh, had, who was uh, quite a... Uh, both a good athlete and a very intellectual person, um, she noticed something was wrong when she was playing tennis. <clears throat> and that was in her early 50s. So she went to the Mayo Clinic, and they finally said, yes, there's something wrong, but we do not know what this is. Uh, this was back in the um, uh, uh, mid-70s. Uh, anyway, so she finally got... Uh, talked to her other family members, got involved with the Human Genome Project out of uh, Duke University. And so starting in the mid-'80s, we started sending uh, DNA samples to uh, Duke for the Human Genome Project. And at that time, they were able to verify that we didn't have SFH or limb girdle, which were the preliminary uh, diagnostic 
identification of the muscle weakness. Uh, and this was by the mid-80s. Uh, so we were aware that something could have been wrong, but there was no uh, diagnosis. Uh, finally, in, let's see, the early 2000s, because we were thinking like limb girdle or FSH, we went to the University of Rochester in New York where they did a biopsy, and uh, the doctor there said, no, it's not uh, FSH, but there is something here. And I believe he passed the information on to Virginia. Uh, and She's nodding. Yeah. Okay. And so um, actually through my cousin, uh, my aunt's son, uh, we heard about Virginia. And so in 2004, uh, or we had already sent some DNA samples in. In 2004, we actually visited Virginia at Harvard, and she confirmed uh, the diagnosis of what was really wrong, even though we'd been you know, looking for well over um, 20, uh, by that time, well over 20 years trying to figure out what was wrong. Since then, uh, I've been working with Virginia to, you know, further identify uh, what was wrong, find out if there will ever be any sort of, you know, treatment. I mean, the likelihood of my, in my lifetime of there being a cure is, of course, you know, very low, but there at least there is a possibility of a treatment which would hope allow me to live out the rest of my life in a little bit better fashion than we currently are at. Amen. And for, I just want to mention, for those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and streaming on the web at KUCI.org. My guests for the whole hour are Dr. Virginia Kimonis, David Sweetman, and his wife Donna standing by over there, over in Nevada, and Zach DeMond and his father in studio with Dr. Kimonis. And David Sweetman is talking about the 20-year path here to toward clarity and there's two things actually closer to 30 Clo- now to 30 I'm, I'm losing count because there's so many years so uh, one thing I wanted to know was whether Dr. Kimonis I'm asking David and Dr. Kimonis can certainly chime in here uh, did did you bring your aunt's data with you when you uh, approached Dr. Kimonis for some understanding at, at the time uh, what information we had I did have a copy of a report from Mayo and from Duke so that when we first visited Virginia, we were able to provide that information. But Virginia had already received um, uh, blood samples that was she was able to do uh, DNA testing then and confirm which particular mutation we have. I also have um, uh, five siblings, uh, three of whom uh, have uh, also the mutation. So four out of uh, my mother's six children uh, inherited that particular mutation, and then our next endeavor was to find out where the mutation started. And as near as we can tell, it's the mutation originated with my grandfather. Uh, unfortunately, for testing, of course, my my grandfather died long before I was born, and my mother was unfortunately killed when I was uh, in my early twenties. Although she had some of the initial symptoms. Uh, she was still too, I mean, this was in 1972, so this was well before there was any chance of any, you know, valid DNA testing to verify what was going on. Uh, but we were able to confirm, you know, the genetic influence with my mother's sister. Uh, of course, she, I mean, uh, my mother's sister also died before 
the, the actual mutation was discovered, but her son uh, was able to, you know, verify through DNA testing that the mutation exists. And unfortunately, we've also verified that uh, my cousin's uh, daughter uh, has uh, inherited the mutation. You brought up the interesting point earlier about the the problems, uh, the morals in this country. It's not an ethical issue, but it is a, certainly a moral issue uh, about uh, and a financial issue. Knowing whether you have a mutation that will cause significant expense in terms of taking care of. So we do have quite a bit of problems in that area. Right. Dr. Kimonis, you, you wanted to add to that, the earlier part of, of his discovery. So I, I did want to mention that David's family is family 15, and they were the original family that helped us hone in to where the gene was, and uh, his family were reported in our first Nature Genetics article in 2004 on the mutations in the genes. So there was no diagnosis, just a lot of clinical information that was uh, provided by David. And of course, David has been the most persistent, and um, it's really wonderful that he's developed a great uh, a website uh, as a resource for other patients. And uh, Yes, and we're going to give that again, and I'll put it in the podcast summary so people can get back to both of those resources of his. Great. So uh, David comes to UC Irvine every year, and one of the things that we as clinical researchers need is natural history data. So... There are companies such as Genzyme that make the enzyme for Pompe disease you just heard about uh, that actually provide the funds to do a natural history study. And Zach is part of this registry. We record all his data every six months. And that's a huge resource when you're looking at other new therapies, uh, whether we're doing a good job with the existing therapy compared to what the natural history data shows. So David is one of the few patients that I have because of lack of funds. Um, I cannot invite all my patients with VCP disease throughout the country and if not the world to come, but he comes uh, at his own expense and we are gathering very useful data and we're using some innovative uh, tools also to monitor how he is progressing. Uh, and I'm hoping that but very soon I'm already working with companies who have asked me to uh, put together a, a protocol, um, working on budgets, etc., to actually study a, a drug called aramoclamol made by Orphazyme. I'm hoping that that will happen. I already mentioned to you about two other promising uh, treatments um, using a drug called rapamycin. Um, and uh, a grant will be submitted, um, as well as some um, exon-modifying um, drugs to remove the mutation. So I'd like to know, David Sweetman, what, kinds of, what kind of treatments are you um, taking? What's part of your uh, regimen? We heard a little bit about Zach's uh, infusions and his diet and his exercise regimen. What is in yours, David? You know, first, there is no approved treatment for anything other than the Paget disease. Uh, which my brother takes the uh, the medicine reclassed, which has helped a lot. Uh, <clears throat> for the muscle atrophying or the dementia, there are no approved treatments. However, I personally strongly believe there are major lifestyle changes that one can make that can slow the degeneration rate. Okay, tell us. Uh, and <clears throat> that if you 
have a proper diet. Uh, your your former guest, I think, identified that exactly. very well. Having a good diet is very important. Uh, getting exercise that you can is very important. Having, I'll call it, a positive attitude where you're going to fight every step of the way to maintain as much of the dignity of life as you can uh, to minimize the burden on your caregiver. Uh, all of those are, are very important things to stay mentally active, to be trying to do things to mitigate the inevitable uh, goes a long way towards helping you stave off the inevitable as long as possible. Uh, like I said, there is, there is no treatment for the muscle, muscle atrophy. However, like in, in my family, there are four of us affected, of which actually currently only three of us are alive. But we are all in three significantly different conditions, well. even though we have the exact same mutation and a relatively similar genome because we're siblings. The difference has been, I'll call it lifestyle, how you, uh, uh, you know, what vitamins you take or what supplements you take, how much exercise you get, how you uh, fight, the, fight the disease uh, are all very important in terms of how, how well you maintain your own dignity of life. And what I would like to pay uh, stock here of is Dr. Kimonis's care includes support of parents and families, and you convene regular sorts of gatherings. So could you tell us how you're supporting these uh, patients in that way? And so, including we've, there's a meeting at the end of this week that some patients' families will be here. Right. So as a result of following patients with rare disorders over many years, I have developed a, a large number of patients. I, I follow a large number of patients, but only for a few selected disorders that I mentioned. So um, I follow, well, I don't actually follow, but I'm in contact with periodically with many patients with VCP, probably the largest uh, collection of patients in the world. And patients, as I mentioned, come at their own expense. Uh, I've had patients, uh, for instance, last week come from Brazil. I have a patient coming from Northern California in a couple of weeks' uh, time. And I'm really hoping that we will develop a registry. I'm working with a European group called Treat NMD uh, to develop a registry for, um, that is international. Um, as I mentioned, working on treatments, which will then bring patients together, and that will provide me not only natural history data, but comparison with the drugs. <clears throat> so uh, for certain disorders like Pompeii disease, um, where I have with with the collaboration of Dr. Tassin Mozafar, uh, developed a clinic. We have four clinics a year devoted, and we actually need many more than that because uh, we o tend to overbook still. We follow patients at annual or uh, six monthly intervals. We monitor everything. Uh, we enter it in the registry, chart their progress, and, and that gives us an instant readout, whether we're um, following the course uh, that is expected, whether we need to provide therapy or more enzyme or 
uh, monitor antibodies. So by, by developing a, a presence, a, a place where a researcher can um, uh, develop expertise in a rare disorders, that actually brings upon uh, innovative treatment. So uh, at UC Irvine, we have a new enzyme that we're um, giving uh, patients with Pompe disease. Of course, you have to qualify. There are different criteria for inclusion in these uh, studies. Uh, we have been funded to do an exercise study that I'm hoping will take off soon. We're going to be recruiting 10 patients and treat them over a, a period of um, uh, four months or so and, and then monitor their progress against their natural history data uh, and so forth. So by, by developing centers of excellence, and this needs to be done for all the 7,000 or more rare genetic disorders, we can then make inroads into um, first understanding the disease, understanding why this patient with this mutation is so much milder than the other. What are the modifying uh, genes or factors? Are there some um, environmental epigenetic factors which can then be used um, to, to modify the, the natural course of the disease? And there are so many resources. I want to make sure we have a chance to uh, include in what are means for Dr. Kimonis and her team to support patients. Um, there, uh, I have to I hasten to say there is an entire World Rare Disease Month that used to be only acknowledged on the rare February 29th, but it needs to be annual. So there will be uh, various events, including uh, one here at the um, Sue and Bill Gross uh, Center for Inter for Regenerative Medicine Institute. It's it's going to be on February 25th from 12 until 2 in the afternoon. And I'll put up the numbers and websites to call there. And then for you, Dr. Kimonis, where would you like people to reach you if they have some compelling contributions or questions? So... Um, <clears throat> Uh, RARE, the organization uh, based in Mission Viejo, is a wonderful uh, organization. They cater to all the RARE disorders to try and bring awareness, uh, and they will reach out to the various specialists and um, refer people on. So uh, because of the geographical proximity, I do um, receive a fair number of uh, inquiries, and then I will, with my contacts in the genetics world, refer them to specialists who are better able to serve them. So as I mentioned, that it takes a lot of resources to um, work up rare disorders, and no center can serve everybody. But uh, I'm also a regular clinical geneticist in clinic. I see patients at UC Irvine. I see adults at UC Irvine, and then pediatric patients at uh, uh, Children's Hospital of Orange County, Chalk, both in Orange. Uh, so patients can, uh, pr prospective patients can reach me at either of those two uh, places. And I uh, see patients in clinic every single week. And RARE, that's the complete name of the the uh, organization, just RARE. And we'll put that up. RARE. So, okay. so they're a support organization. Um, but uh, patients don't have to go through them. They can come directly to me and see me in clinic. And through chalk and UCI. And Dr. Kimonis's last name is spelled K-I-M-O-N-I-S. Um, and then globalgenes.org is another resource for people to go to, and they're the ones that are putting on a number of world rare disease uh, events, starting with February 28th going through the end of March. And so um, I wanted to thank everybody for being here. Zach Damon and David Sweetman, it's been a real privilege having both of you here 
to raise our level of understanding, your personal challenges that you've been facing, which is very essential as a service in improving medical outcomes and other larger outcomes. I want to thank you, David Sweetman and Zach DeMond, Don DeMond and Donna Sweetman. Thank you, both, all four of you, for your time. You're welcome. Okay. Thank you for having us. And Dr. Kimonis, I want to thank you for your time as well and for your contributions. And I offstanding invitation to return to these airwaves uh, as you continue to break new ground and build and expand beneficial diagnostics and treatments. Thank you very much. It really has been a privilege working with both Zach and his family and, and David Sweetman. So continue the good work, both of you. Thank you. And uh, Claudia. Thank you, all of you. Goodbye. 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 Thank you. Bye, David. We'll be in touch soon. Yes. (laughs) Well, that is a wrap for today's program. This is uh, David Glass signing off with the David Bowie's theme. I'm sure you'll recognize it. Well, that was for today, our program on Ask a Leader. Next week, we'll hear from two UCI administrators of the sexual assault policy, Mandy Mount, director of the CARE office, and Teresa Truman, deputy of Title IX office and senior investigator in the offices of Equal Opportunity and Diversity. Andrew Tonkovich of UCI Creative Writing Lecture fame and more trades as well will be appearing on the show briefly at the end of next week's program. He'll be moderating a panel in Santa Ana later in the week called Challenging Capitalism. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Thank you.